Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In mid-November, Washington and Beijing mutually agreed to start granting journalist visas to each other's journalists again, putting an end to months of reciprocal visa rejections and denials. A perhaps minor, yet still significant, thawing amongst a grander narrative of decoupling and worsening relations between the two countries. Chung Li's Middle Class Shanghai, Reshaping U.S.-China Engagement, published by Brookings in March 2021, plots out a new way to understand the U.S.-China relationship. Chung Li's book attempts to show the importance of the city of Shanghai to China's economic and political development, and studies its population to show the continued value of engagement between America and China. Chung Li is the director of the John L. Thornton China Center and a senior fellow at the, in the Foreign Policy Program at Brookings. He is also the director of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. We're joined today as well by Brian Wong. Brian, could you say a few words about yourself? Thank you very much, Nicholas. I'm a Rhodes Scholar, DPhil and Politics Candidate at Balliol College, Oxford, and a co-founder of the Oxford Political Review. I'm also a columnist with the Hong Kong Economic Journal and contributor to the Nate 10 newsletter. Today... The three of us are going to talk about the city of Shanghai, its importance to China, and why looking at U.S.-China relations with the prism of a single city might be a better way to understand the international system. So, Chung, thank you so much for joining me and Brian today. Um, let's perhaps start with the city of Shanghai. Why focus on Shanghai as a way to understand both China's domestic politics and its relations with the United States? Well, first of all, uh, honor and pleased with both of you. Uh, I'm also glad that you start with the essential question, why Shanghai? Uh, there are three main reasons that I have focused on Shanghai. First, understanding Shanghai is vital to understanding modern China. A famous Chinese saying is quite revealing. Uh, it goes like this, to learn about a 2000 year Chinese history, one should visit Xi'an. To understand the 500 year Middle Kingdom, 
one has to see Beijing to grasp the past 100 years of changes in China, one must look at Shanghai. Now, secondly, Shanghai is currently the pace setter in China's new search for global power, and its role uh, will shape how China will act and how the outside world will respond to the emergence of global China. But here, I wanted to address my argument that the middle-class Shanghai actually reveals China's unsettled future, because Shanghai embodies what I call two tails of a city. As the so-called head of dragon, Shanghai has reflected China's industrial policy and perhaps also state capitalism. But we should not forget that Shanghai has been the frontier city of market reforms opening up as cost and cosmopolitanism. Shanghai was, is, and will be deeply uh, integrated in, into the international system. For example, Shanghai is now the world's busiest container port. Singapore is the second, and by the way, Hong Kong is the seventh. Now, critics of Shanghai and China may reasonably argue that Shanghai is a showcase of China's growing aggressive global, uh, aggressive global outreach. But it's also true that Shanghai represents the vanguard of the middle-class worldly voices, views, and values. Certainly, and most importantly, my book argued that Shanghai and China, indeed, should not be uh, perceived in a monolithic and a stagnant way. Its uh, internal contradictions and the paradoxical dynamics deserve much attention. The future of the Shanghai is, of course, unwritten. Uh, in fact, China's tra trajectory is not predetermined, and it faces serious constraints due to both domestic and international factors. And it also uh, embodies some interesting contrasts and different options. As Dr. Henry Kissinger recently uh, noted, I quote, uh, China is still in the middle of searching for the nature of its place in the world, end quote. How the Chinese dynamics unfold will make a big difference. The United States, um, especially the grand strategy, strategy toward China, therefore, must be holistic, multifaceted, forward-looking, and flexible. Unfortunately, um, there's some problem at the current uh, U.S. approach toward China. This is why I uh, has, uh, uh, have written this book. So thank you, Cheng. And I want to ask you a follow-up question on that, which is just how important is and has Shanghai been to China's economic development? And how has that role changed over the past decades, especially since Kaifang, uh, so the economic reforms and opening up era under Deng? Well, since the early 1990s, Chinese authorities have designated Shanghai as the so-called head of dragon. Uh, symbolizing the uh, leading role of Shanghai in China's quest for power and prosperity in the 21st century. Now, this metaphor also suggests that Shanghai leads the Yangtze River uh, Delta region, and more broadly, the whole country in China's efforts to uh, play economic catch-up with more developed countries. Now, the degree of favorable policies toward Shanghai has varied from time to time, due to changes in the top leadership in Dongnanhai. But Shanghai has set the pace for the country's socioeconomic development 
uh, over much of the past four decades. Now, by 2019, I mean, before the COVID, 40, uh, this is also 40 years after China began its economic reforms, national GDP had grown 60 times larger, this is the whole country, and the per capita income 25 times higher. In 1979, China's capita, uh, per capita GDP was less than uh, $300 US dollars, about only 3% of that of the United States. But GDP per capita has increased from about 1,000 US dollars in 2001 to 10,000 uh, in 2020, and is expected to reach 30,000 by 2035. Now in Shanghai, uh, per capita GDP already exceeded 23,000 US dollars uh, last year in 2020. Now, so I just use, want to use middle class as a showcase to see the China's, uh, Shanghai's role in China's economic development. Now, uh, the books focus on Shanghai, but also documents the remarkable expansion of the middle class throughout the country. 10 years ago, 40% of China's relatively small urban middle class residents uh, uh, live in the four um, uh, cities, what we call tier one city, Shanghai, Beijing, Guangzhou and Shenzhen. According to a study uh, conducted by Dominic Barton and the former head of McKinsey and most recently and uh, Canadian ambassador to China, now he uh, is the CEO of uh, um, Rio Tinto, I believe that uh, he got that uh, offer. And also uh, based on his study, this is really uh, many years ago, along with his colleague at the McKinsey, uh, the fast growth of the middle class has really spread beyond uh, these four tier cities I just mentioned, uh, tier one cities uh, in recent years to other Chinese cities, including tier two and tier three cities in inland region. By next year, 2022, the proportion of China's middle class that resides in those uh, mega cities uh, is expected to drop you know, uh, to about 16%, from 40% about 20 years ago to 16% while 76% of the middle class will live in tier two and the tier three cities. That's telling the story. Shanghai is a pace setter for China's economic development. Um, yeah, uh, uh, so that's it's very important. It's a pioneer, but it's not just about Shanghai. It's go beyond Shanghai, go beyond the Yangtze River data and to be the, the case for the entire country. So you note in your book that China has been a source, sorry, not China, Shanghai has been a source for a lot of China's political leadership. Um, and, and so I guess I kind of wanted to kind of get into, you know, is there something about being based in Shanghai um, that affects the views and mindsets, the politicians that, that come from there? I especially want to focus on um, Jiang Zemin, whose I think reputation has been seen in a, in a much more positive light recently. Um, how did being based in Shanghai affect Jiang Zemin's approach to governing? Um, this is a very good question. Actually, the book has one chapter focusing on Shanghai leaders. Uh, now, first, let me make it clear that the Shanghai leaders have never been identical. In PRC history, there have been some leftist or Maoist radicals, such as Gang Fu, who were all from Shanghai. Uh, there, of course, have been more moderate and the well-known reform leaders, such as Zhu Rongji and Mayor Xu Kuangdi, and of course, that, uh, 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 Zhang Zemin as well. 
Now, having said that, I do believe that neither Shanghai origin uh, or those who have uh, spent much of their careers in Shanghai have some distinct, uh, distinct features uh, from having run this most cosmopolitan city in the country. It is interesting to point out that after the Tiananmen incident, Deng Xiaoping uh, surprised everyone by designating a Shanghai leader, Jiang Zemin, to be his successor. Uh, in also in 1990, one year after, Deng Xiaoping said, I quote, one of my big mistakes was I did not include Shanghai when I launched for Special Economic Zone in 1980s, end quote. Now that same year, Shanghai launched its historical plan for development Pudong. Now come, let me uh, directly answer your question about Jiang Zemin. As we know, Jiang Zemin uh, was born here in Shanghai. He studied and worked in Shanghai for many decades, and he liked to be identified as a Shanghainese. Um, now, this experience certainly profoundly um, uh, influenced his cosmopolitan traits, you may argue. Now, he unambiguously embraced Western culture, and he has been known for his uh, uh, endorsement of cultural pluralism and transnationalism. You know, the, my book, uh, I spent a lot of time talking about architecture in Shanghai, and um, especially since the 1990s and uh, his leadership. And, um, uh, uh, but actually, he started that in the middle 1980s when he was a Shanghai leader. Then he f- further uh, uh, encouraged. As we know that uh, Zhang Zemin allowed an Italian opera um, you know, per, uh, team to perform in the Forbidden City. That was actually a big no-no at that time uh, for many conservatives. He invited a French architect to design a postmodern grand theater, I mean, uh, for Tiananmen Square. And also urged the Chinese uh, public to watch the American film, Titanic. He said he watched twice. He was deeply moved. This is in, the, in his uh, uh, formal uh, uh, remarks in the, in the party meetings. In 1999, China published some um, 5,000 foreign book titles accounting for 10% of the total number of newly published books. This is truly remarkable, a relatively high percentage compared to the share of the foreign books published in other countries. I think probably only China publishes so many of these kind of foreign books. Now, President Jiang has been recognized by many analysts, both in China and abroad, for implementing a moderate approach to crises such as Taiwan's presidential election in 1996, and the Belgrade embassy bombing in 1999, and FP, I'm sorry, EP3 airplane crash uh, in Hainan Island in 2001. I mean, similarly, Su Rongji also strongly and skillfully pushed for negoti- negotiation leading to China's uh, accession to the WTO uh, 20 years ago. Now, these soft actions or reactions by uh, Jiang Zemin and Su Rongji and other Shanghai leaders were critical were criticized by many Chinese at the time, but they are now widely regarded by the public as wise policies. So so on that question actually, I want to ask an interesting follow-up, which is 
Essentially, President Xi has been described by some commentators as a social conservative and an economic egalitarian. He also served as Secretary of Zhejiang and briefly uh, of Shanghai, although he's been noted for having strong connections to various sort of mid to senior tier officials that rose up the ranks, uh, both during and also after tenure in Shanghai. Uh, Cheng, what do you make of Xi's relationship with Shanghai in relation to your thesis just then, and how this has, if at all, shaped his current ideological positions uh, on China's overarching direction? Well, this is a very, very important question. I I, I think I'm so glad you raised that question. Actually, my uh, book, this chapter, directly answers that question uh, with the, the title of the chapter is Fang Jiang to Xi, The Enduring Power and the Influence of the so-called Shanghai Game. Now, Xi Jinping has a, a complicated relationship with the so-called Shanghai Game. Xi Jinping was largely promoted to uh, or endorsed by Jiang Zemin and the former Vice President uh, Zheng Qinghong, who were co-founders of the Shanghai Game. So you can say without Jiang Zemin and without Zheng Qinghong, uh, uh, there's no uh, Xi Jinping as a top leader. You can even go that far to argue that. Now, uh, Jiang, uh, Xi Jinping also spent eight months as party chief of Shanghai before moving to Beijing to become the designated successor to Hu Jintao in 2007. Now, most important, interestingly, Xi Jinping is now surrounded by his confidants who also advanced their career in Shanghai, including Power Bureau Standing Committee member uh, Wang Funing and Executive Vice Premier Han Zhen. These are two uh, in the uh, uh, in the Power Bureau Standing Committee, uh, seven members of the Power Bureau Standing Committee, I think you can assume that uh, they have a very good relationship. Although uh, Wang Funing's rise and Han Zheng's rise more attributed to Jiang Zemin than to uh, uh, Xi Jinping. Now, anti-corruption chief uh, Yang Xiaodu and uh, foreign policy uh, chief Yang Jiechi and uh, Xi Jinping's chief of staff Ding Xuexiang, they all, um, you know, uh, 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 met Xi Jinping and uh, developed a good relationship. I mean, through um, Shanghai and also through some other, uh, uh, you know, uh, experiences. So uh, really, Xi Jinping uh, very boldly promote and and use Shanghai leaders, particularly Ding Xuexiang. I think he first met with him um, when Xi Jinping so so for eight months as Shanghai Party chief. Uh, Ding Xuexiang was his chief of staff. Uh, at that time in Shanghai Municipal Party Committee. Now he's the chief of staff uh, in the Central Committee in Beijing. And the thing will likely emerge as one of the most powerful leaders in the country in the next five years and beyond. Now, uh, I would not be surprised that uh, more than half of the Power Bureau Standing Committee members in the 20th Party Congress next uh, October or, or November, um, uh, you know, more than half will likely have served as the top leaders in Shanghai. They, uh, these, uh, they include Xi Jinping, possible Han Zhen, and he is uh, one of the few leading candidates for next premier, Ding Xuexiang, the person I just mentioned, and Li Chang, current pa- Shanghai party uh, boss, and Li Xi, currently party boss in Guangdong, for serve as a senior leader in Shanghai, including head of organization department and also deputy secretary of Shanghai for uh, four years. And also, new party bureau member with Shanghai leadership experience, including the candidate, including Ying Yong, the person uh, served as Shanghai mayor, then later moved to uh, Hubei 
uh, during the uh, COVID-19 crisis, really did a fantastic job, you know, after he arrived there uh, uh, to crack down, uh, uh, you know, Wuhan uh, 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 COVID-19. That was a really very critical moment. And also current mayor uh, Gong Zhen, and also another person, a leader, Shanghai leader, now moved to uh, Gansu, uh, Ying Hong, and, uh, and also the Tianjin uh, mayor, who previously also served as deputy party secretary of Shanghai, you know, uh, uh, Liao Guo Xun. These are all Shanghai background leaders, and um, I think that they are all in a very, very good position. Now, so you can see that the Xi Jinping really trust, relying on uh, Shanghai leader, but also at the same time, you can also say that um, he um, certainly um, you know, undermines some of the uh, Shanghai gang members, you know, that the recent uh, you know, arrest uh, related with the for, former uh, vice mayor of Shanghai and also uh, vice uh, mayor of Shanghai, Gong uh, Daoan, and also uh, the former vice minister of public security, Sun uh, Nijun, who also served as a uh, Shanghai vice mayor before. So that's a very, very interesting uh, development. All these trends show the dynamics and the complexities of China's factional politics at this uh, pivotal moment in China's rise with the U.S.-China relationship also you know, uh, uh, leading towards a great confrontation and hostility. I think uh, for U.S. grasping the internal dynamics of Chinese uh, communist leadership is more critical than ever. Um, you know, we cannot afford getting things wrong, but unfortunately, there are a lot of, um, uh, uh, you know, rumors, fake news, and uh, uh, wishful thinking, not careful uh, understanding analysis about Shanghai leader. I hope that the people will pay more attention to importance of Shanghai and the fact that Xi Jinping relies on many cosmopolitan Shanghai leaders. And uh, that's a very, very important observation. Uh, 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 you know, I think for Western world. Thank you so much, Cheg. And now I want to shift onto sort of broader macro territory here, which is in your book, you study the attitudes and effects of returnees, the so-called Haigui, uh, those who went to the United States for university and then returned. And indeed, um, even Wang Huning, despite not studying or being a student in America, he himself was a visiting scholar in America where he wrote which is America against America. Um, so I guess the question I want to ask you is, what do you learn and what are the major findings you sort of, could, I guess, summarize based on your book? And would you say that these findings are changing given recent circumstances and restrictions and travel and all the uh, miscellaneous transformations to bilateral relations between Washington and Beijing. Well, I'm glad you mentioned about Wang Funing. I actually, when he came to US 1988 and to study, and the first stop was uh, UC Berkeley, he uh, worked under with my mentor, Bob Scalpino. And when he came, he also uh, came with the, um, um, his teacher at, uh, at Fudan, Ni Sishong, and uh, um, so, uh, uh, so we we share the same um, similar mentors and uh, in study of uh, in his study in, in the U.S. That he later on also served as visiting scholar at the University of Michigan and also University of Iowa. And um, that book he published, he uh, he wrote that period in 1988. Published it in 1991. Um, you know, three years later, it's really quite insightful. You know, you're looking back. 30 years, there's so much insight. 
Um, now, of course, that my uh, book is not uh, about uh, Wang Fu Ning, and uh, I just uh, mentioned him in passing. You know, when I returned to Shanghai as a visiting scholar at Fudan, he was the dean of that uh, 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 you know, uh, law school in, uh, at Fudan, but also the department chair of the international relations when I served as a visiting scholar, although my um, contact with him was very, very lim- limited. Now, but the three chapters of my book really focus on the role of returnees when people like Wang Funing, when people like uh, Liu He reach that high level and their entire career uh, is spent on the government think tank, you can see that uh, it's a very, very important development. Uh, um, uh, 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 it's a new path for uh, the career uh, elite recruitment. Uh, unlike the previously, always find the local government. Uh, neither Wang Funing nor Liu He ever served as the local government, whether it be county, uh, municipal, or province. Now, but of course, in my book, uh, uh, the three chapters on returnees uh, talk about the broader um, kind of impact. Uh, the depth and the breadth of the educational exchanges between these two countries with vastly different political system and ideological ideologies throughout the past four decades have been truly remarkable. Uh, the, sheer num- the sheer number of the Chinese nationals who study abroad and the tidal wave of the Chinese students and scholars who returned home after completing their overseas education was perhaps beyond anyone's imagination in 1978 when Deng Xiaoping and President Jimmy Carter launched this educational exchange program. Now, between uh, 1978 to 2019, about 6 million PRC citizens studied abroad with significant percentage going to the United States. Uh, in 2018 alone, over 700,000 Chinese students studied overseas, making China the primary source of international students in other countries. As a result, China was a country that sent the most students to study overseas for 10 consecutive years. In the United States, 360,000 PRC students enrolled in schools that academic year in 2017 to 2018, the academic year, uh, marking the ninth consecutive year that China sent the most foreign students to study in American schools. PRC students account for 33% of the total number of international students in the United States that year. Uh, the second uh, country is India, uh, send uh, like 18%, uh, uh, account for 18% of the total number of international students in the US. You see the difference. Now, also significant of them return to China. Here, I just want to say, give you an example that how powerful, uh, that uh, the, the, how influential this uh, returnees serve uh, in uh, all walks of life in China, including in educational institution, research center, central and local governments, as I mentioned about the central government leaders, but also Shanghai municipal leaders, state and private enterprises, uh, foreign and joint venture companies, law firms, hospitals, clinics, me- uh, the media networks, and NGOs, name it. Now, um, in terms of the, the, give the law, I just wanted to give an example because my book uh, spent a lot of time talking about the, the influence of the uh, um, you know, lawyers with foreign trainings. Now, in the Zhongren law firm in Shanghai, one of the top law firms in the country, 75 out of the 112 partners in that law firm are foreign educated retainees. 
accounting for two thirds of the total. A majority of uh, these returning lawyer or law partners, actually sixty four percent, received their JDs degrees in top law schools in the United States, uh, including Harvard, Columbia, NYU, Stanford, Chicago, and UC Berkeley. And most of them have passed the bar exam in New York. Some also passed bar exam in California, so that they can practice as a licensed attorneys in the key states for international finance and trade. With an increasingly global economy, I mean, globalized economy, and with the United States and other Western countries pressing China to meet international norms and standards, especially in regarding uh, uh, to uh, enforcement and uh, compliance with the internet, internet, intellectual property rights. These U.S. educated Chinese lawyers may be instrumental in promoting cooperation and understanding across the Pacific uh, in the years to come. So I think that, uh, um, you know, we, we uh, but the, let me also mention, uh, but the pervasive view about the bilateral educational and cultural exchanges in Washington is no longer nowadays, it's no longer one of the hope for positive change through engagement, but rather one of the fear that the scholars and the students from the PRC um, attending American educational and research institutions are weapons, quote unquote weapons of Chinese Communist Party who will um, ha- uh, uh, you know, uh, speed up China's um, ascent to a superpower status in science technology at the expense of the United States. I think it's a very, very narrow-minded uh, interpretation. Uh, so those educated elites not only contribute when they return to China, but those who remain in the U.S. also contribute to academic life and the uh, various works of life in the U.S., not least to help understand um, uh, 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 changing China. Now, uh, one chapter of my book actually has uh, J. William Fulbright's words as an epigraph. I quote here, we must try to expand the boundaries of human wisdom, empathy, and the perception. And there's no way of doing that except through education. Now, my book raises the question, after all, if education cannot bridge minds across the Pacific, what can? Over. So you you mentioned that you have three chapters on education on 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 Shanghai's ret, uh, on the returnee population, and one of those chapters is on avant garde artists. And I guess I want to quickly ask, you know, why focus on that particular group of people, and what do what does avant garde art tell us about Shanghai and the value of engagement? Well, uh, actually. Um... Avant-garde art, um, the, there's a two art chapters in my book. And uh, these are not part of the three educational books. Uh, the educational exchange book is uh, three, uh, including one is a survey research based on Horizon's uh, uh, multi, multiple-year uh, survey research. Uh, the, the two separate chapters uh, on avant-garde. And uh, avant-garde uh, art, by definition, is ahead of time. They are really quite revealing. And uh, some of the criticism of the United States. You early on I mentioned about Wang Funing uh, uh, talk about the America against America. That was probably three uh, decades ago. I mean, uh, avant-garde art are usually located almost 15, 20 years ago, but continued until uh, until now. Um, 
So it's a quite, really quite remarkable, uh, uh, fascinating to see their discourse. They are not a fan of authoritarianism. Uh, they certainly promote some of the ideas like uh, climate change, uh, uh, equality, social justice, women's rights, civil rights, and etc. But uh, they are also quite crit- critical about the uh, American arrogance, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, hegemonic thinking, and etc. Now, uh, uh, you know, I also want to mention that uh, I read somewhere a few years ago that uh, 70 out of the best paid avant-garde artists in the world actually had a Chinese name. I mean, this is a fascinating uh, finding. Many of them uh, grew up during the Cultural Revolution. I think these dramatic changes in China made them more sophisticated, more critical uh, in, in their artwork. Now, many of them live and work in Shanghai, then um, some of them had the opportunity to study in the United States, including Chen Yifei, later Chen Yifei, and uh, Chen Danqing, and uh, Gu Wenda. And also, uh, one person is not from uh, Shanghai, Xu Bing, a friend of mine. He actually is having an exhibition right now in Shanghai. Uh, he's largely based in Beijing, but uh, spent many times, uh, uh, many years in the United States, and also got the Genius Award from uh, from MacArthur Foundation. Now, over the past decade, China has hosted an average of uh, 300 international exhibitions every year, a significant portion of which are focused on art and the culture. Now, in recent years, Shanghai has experienced an exponentially rapid expansion of art galleries. According to a ranking by the World Cities Culture Forum based in UK, by 2019, Shanghai was ranked third in the world in terms of num- total number of art galleries, uh, which is uh, 700, uh, 770. Um, behind only New York, uh, it's uh, like a 1,500, and Paris, like 1,100. But uh, Shanghai is ahead of the Tokyo, uh, London, Rome, uh, Brussels, and Los Angeles. So it's really quite remarkable in such a short period of time Shanghai is catching up. Now, also, I spent a lot of time, I mean, uh, actually almost one chapter describing the art gallery, the themes. And the Shanghai municipal government has actually recognized the need to establish excellent museums as the city's landmark, especially designating the, the, the eight-mile stretch of land on the newly developed western uh, bond called Xi'an of the Huangpu River as the art district. The four-mile-long uh, Longteng Avenue along the West Bond has already become um, home to dozens of museums and art galleries. Um, half of them are privately owned. Some of them are really gigantic. And um, when the whole project is completed, the, the West Bond will be Asia's largest art corridor. Now, the art gallery boom in Shanghai reflects the uh, the evolving cultural dynamics. dynamics. Middle class Residents in this cosmopolitan city have become increasingly dissatisfied with uh, homogenized products and services and are now demanding subculture identity, individuality, and diversity. Let me very quickly mention that, of course, there are some challenges in terms of political and media control and uh, censorship in Shanghai as elsewhere in the country. But we should not forget these dynamic themes and also the soft power um, reflect the Chinese societal um, uh, development. Um, China's influence in this area in art, architecture, music, films, television, 
I mean, particularly in East and South Asia, it's a phenomenon. Now, let me also mention that uh, two favorite, uh, favorite woman anchor, TV anchor person. One is uh, Dong Qing. He actually comes from the same university I graduated from, Badong Sida East China Normal University. Um, she is an anchor of many programs, including the most popular called the Reader, Yue Du Zhe. And another person is Jing Xing, is trans, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, gender person. And uh, she was a dancer. Now uh, later become a late night show host, uh, most popular one, uh, and uh, you know for many years he, she's now uh, the manager of the parliament, uh, the traditional nightclub in Shanghai. This is tell you the dynamics of Shanghai. Uh, uh, uh. So I think the Western views about the monolithic thinking of China of Shanghai, and um, and even talk about societal threat. This is just the completely wrong. So I just want to ask, I guess, a slightly different question concerning education. Uh, just picking up on a strand that Nicholas raised just then, it seems to be harder for academic students, journalists, business people, and others to travel back and forth between the US and China, whether because of short-term factors like the quarantine or because of other structural, more long-term reasons such as concerns over the tightening space uh, with respect to discourses and. Uh, speech in the country, um, Cheng. How do you see this this decline uh, in affecting U.S. and China relations, and what's the way out or remedy to this problematic situation? Well, it's a serious problem. And um, COVID nineteen is, is uh, decoupling itself in terms of international travel restrictions. Uh, certainly, you know some of the things we are doing, like the online virtual webinar, like such as this. And um, also forms of communication like a uh, Douyin, like WeChat, may help, but still different. We need to have a, a person-to-person contact. We need to close intimate, I mean, um, in kind of dialogue, a uh, discourse, and uh, virtual things is uh, still uh, not uh, reach that level. Uh, as we all know, that U.S.-China relations have deteriorated over the past two or three years, at a speed and a scope beyond what could have been predicted. Blame games, propaganda wars, and the conspiracy theories have arisen from both sides of the Pacific. Not only has each side accused the other of being a genocide regime and speculated that the COVID-19 pandemic originated from a lab leak in the other country, but the risk of military confrontation and war between two superpowers is also on the rise, especially given the possibility of incidents, uh, you know, intended or unintended, in the Taiwan Strait. But uh, I also should mention the long-term implication of this pandemic uh, of the century are far from clear. Uh, even prior to the outbreak of the COVID nineteen, economic disparities within and between countries have already given rise to anti-globalization movements across the world. Uh, one can reasonably expect that the cynicism regarding regional and global integration, as well as racial, um, radical populism, racism, and xenophobia will likely all rise across many parts of the world, leading to a transformation of people's mindsets, behaviors, preference, and priorities. I mean, the, when two countries are on the, uh, on the course for a major conflict, Demonization, I mean, each other is a common practice. So we should really stop that. We should, uh, like the President Biden and President Xi Jinping recently said, 
America or China are both great countries. They are great peoples, but people now tend to forget that. And also, U.S.-China relations is not just a state-to-state relation, but um, should be also people-to-people relations. Now, one thing is related to your question is I think that the China, uh, in the recent uh, maybe five to ten years, heavily depend on domestic tourists at the expense of international tourists. That's a major problem, I would say. Now, there's one recent study by, um, I think, by uh, United Nations and some of the also uh, international organizations find that uh, China's um, only have the, the uh, China's foreign tourists only account for 0.3% of GDP. But that's very, very low. Um, the international uh, the number is uh, 3%. So the, the, the countries lower than China, let me mention some of them, Algeria and uh, Venezuela, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Bangladesh, Congo, and, uh, and Kuwait. So I think that this, this is a serious problem. Now, Thailand is 12%. Again, China is 0.3%. So I hope that after COVID, Chinese government need to pay more attention and uh, to promote international tourists and from all parts of the world. When you visit China, you contact with people, you will find we are all similar in many ways. And uh, certainly that uh, the middle class people, usually tourists are middle class people from other countries, can find the same aspiration and then develop respect and understanding. So I think their question embodies that things. But unfortunately, COVID at this moment so to prevent that. So I think uh, hopefully, you know, after COVID is controlled, China will really open up. And even during the current situation, I think China also needs to do some policy adjustment and uh, uh, to, because the cost is so overwhelming. I mean, uh, 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 I understand uh, the Chinese position, and uh, but uh, I think it's a more thoughtful, balanced, forward-looking approach will be very, very helpful. Over. Thank you, Cheng. And, and much of your analysis in the book, it precisely revolves or hinges upon that commonality, right? That sen- sen- sort of sentiment of similarities and converging attitudes between folks in Shanghai and also the counterparts in middle class America, for instance. But I guess this leads us on to a methodological question I want to put to you, which is now the two views as to this, right? One view is that Shanghai has a model. It's a Shanghai Moshi. So there's a model that can be transplanted and applied to other sort of similar cities in the mainland eventually, maybe Nanjing, maybe Guangzhou, maybe Shenzhen, etc., with variations and different degrees or, or some sort of transformations, nevertheless uh, adapting to local circumstances. But un- underpinning that thought is that Shanghai can and should be transplanted elsewhere, ultimately. Another thought or another view, though, is that Shanghai is unique. It is a Shanghai particularist view that there's only one Shanghai in mainland China or in China at large, and there's only room, therefore, for one city of such a construct and configurations. I was wondering if we could pick a break. Do you think Shanghai is exceptional in the second sense, such that there wouldn't be any transplantability or transferability? Or do you actually see your analysis of Shanghai being exceptional as precipitating the first sets where ultimately uh, Beijing, Zhongnanhai, is seeking to transplant the Shanghai model and move it and shift it to other contexts as well within the country at large? Well, um, this is a complicated question. 
my book really uh, entirely tried to address that issue. Uh, I think it's both. On one hand, Shanghai is unique. It's China's most westernized country. Um, ironically, it's also the birth city of the Chinese communism, and uh, also was a radical city during the Cultural Revolution. And um, uh, as early I mentioned, it's the uh, it's the uh, a tale of two cities uh, because it's a yes, you can see uh, it, the power of state-owned enterprises, industrial policy, and uh, you can even say state capitalism. Uh, uh, but at the same time, Shanghai is the uh, it's market driven and, uh, and uh, very open minded. Not only just in economic things and uh, a lot of experiments. The first stock market and the land leasing to certain extent, large scale commercial land leasing, all, all started from Shanghai and uh, and uh, and the Pudong development really profoundly changed China over the past two two decades, two or three decades. So it's a combination of that. Now, but I, I want to emphasize that uh, we need to look at Shanghai because the Shanghai is a combination of three subcultures. One is local, the other is national, the third is post-cosmopolitan. This is not either or. They can combine together, uh, form the unique culture identity and Haipai culture, uh, which is profoundly important. So again, this is echo to the theme of the book. We should not look at Shanghai uh, or China in a monolithic term. Uh, this is uh, not the cultural convergence, but the cultural communication, cultural exchanges, right? I mean, culture, I mean, we when we talk about globalization, when you refer to economic globalization, we do not refer to cultural globalization, because cultural globalization is it's a, itself, it's a, it's a contradiction, because there's, culture is always unique, always uh, it's distinct from other, but does not mean you should be isolated, insulated, and also, uh, no matter how much you change, you, Shanghai still maintains some of its characteristics before. But also, I want to mention, Shanghai is always China's Shanghai. Even under the colonialism or semi-colonialism, uh, the local uh, and the national uh, uh, culture play an important role. So I think this is a combination. Now, but the important thing is this is not, a, in a way, the broad term, it's not unique, just like in New York, just like in Paris. And etc. They also have these kind of functions. Now, what I said early on, the middle class and also foreign educated retainees sending students abroad, or uh, Shanghai, like very much like a cradle, or one of the cradles in China, but then over uh, then spill over to other region and the entire country. So in that regard, it's also part of the whole story. But it never be will never be the same. There's there's a, a you know always a, uh, the country is so large. And but the important thing is at the, at the moment the middle class is not just limited in coastal region they expand that's actually very good. Uh, 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 but when another things is I think very very important uh, when we talk about uh, U.S.-China relation we always look at the national level. The, so there's a, someone said that it's often said that the Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill uh, disagree uh, on everything except except China with certain truism. Uh, um, as I live in Washington. But uh, at the local level, local meaning state or municipal level, it is a different kind of bipartisanship uh, consensus regarding China because local governments, whether the legislature and the, and the executive branch, I mean, local government, the governors and mayors, they want to engage with China. I mean, they, they established a sister city, sister state for uh, the past two or three decades. 
whether it be educational and uh, particular economic exchanges are always very, very important. Now, according to one um, U.S. study released uh, um, a few months ago, China is the largest import partner of 15 U.S. states in 2020 last year, including California, New York, Florida, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. These are very important states demographically and politically. I think uh, when we talk about uh, the Americans' current, uh, you know, kind of uh, um, very, very poor image of China uh, and also bipartisanship wanted to have tough uh, on China, even, you know, uh, 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 treat China as enemy. But uh, we should be careful. Uh, local level, it's a little bit different. Yes, there's some criticism of China for understandable reason, but also the tremendous need for cooperation, for engagement. I hope that my story of Shanghai in that regard will resonate well with many people who uh, live in the U.S. cities. They know that um, they are part of our United States, but also they are uh, uh, unique in its own way. So in that regard, Shanghai probably uh, is not, not uh, that you know, exceptional. Over. So I have one more question, um, which is, uh, and it's kind of, it's, it's kind of to, to take the central conceit of your book and think about applying it to different countries. What do you gain from looking at a country, whether it's their domestic situation or their standing in the world through the prism of a single city? And do you think we, someone might learn something by looking at America's international presence through just the city of New York or India's international presence by looking at just the city of Mumbai? Do you think there's value in looking at a country uh, through the prism of one of its commercial capitals? Well, I, I, I do believe that uh, the few things, one is we should avoid monolithic thinking of a country, um, even uh, a city. Uh, as I said, Shanghai is a tale of two cities with multiple uh, uh, dimensions. The others, we do need to pay attention to regional differentiations. And uh, the uh, the sad truth, we sounds like uh, we study China we only focus on Beijing, uh, maybe Xinjiang, uh, but don't but forget China is a it's a vast different country. There's different regions, different uh, 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 perspective. There's also domestic competition, and uh, uh, you can see that uh, at the, during the Cultural Revolution, uh, Shanghai subculture is largely suppressed. People only talk about national culture, and for a long time, for three or four. Uh, two decades or even longer, Shanghai actually declined. And um, uh, uh, when James Fellow, a distinct American journalist, visited Shanghai, he wrote a piece, uh, I think in early 1980, talking about Shanghai's surprise. What surprised him is not about the changes, but rather no change, you know, during the Cultural Revolution and the previous three decades. So that tells you a story, a country, a city story could be profoundly important for countries uh, uh, trajectory, and also that uh, early on mentioned about the subnational interest and the pluralistic nature of uh, you know our society. Uh, these are all relevant things. I think we should keep in mind if we uh, consider Shanghai and pay more attention to Shanghai rather than purely Beijing. We may have different conclusion, and uh, uh, so I share. Uh, the things with many uh, American, uh, you know, journalists who report Shanghai, and also many diplomats who stationed in Shanghai, 
They all tell me Shanghai in that regard, it's a, just a fascinating story, different from Beijing. Now, um, a Chinese scholar, his name is Yang Dongping, he wrote a, a, a book called City of, Mon- City of Monsoon. So all related to what wind, uh, which, which direction the wind will go. Uh, so that tells you uh, the importance to study of a sh- uh, city, to study about high Thai culture, and uh, to understand China is not just a Beijing, but also a lot of different uh, important cities, different subcultures, and also dynamics um, is always there. Uh, uh, over. So with that, thank you for listening to our interview with Cheng Li, author of Middle Class Shanghai, Reshaping U.S.-China Engagement. Cheng, I actually have a couple more final questions, which are, uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you? <laughs> well, the, you, you can find my work from Brookings' website and uh, uh, brookings.edu, but uh, I think Hong Kong is okay, but uh, uh, China probably it, it, you have difficulties because of uh, um, some um, you know censorship. But uh, uh, my work uh, is uh, is widely translated into Chinese. Uh, they are available in into a lot of interviews. I had a numerous interviews just last year and published many articles. Um, uh, and also that uh, like Brian uh, Wang, I published in. Uh, China US focus a lot, South China Morning Post a lot, and foreign affairs a lot. And um, um, my next book, I'm working on a new book called Xi Jinping's Protege, Rising Elite Groups. Um, you know, this is largely about the the the, the many new groups it start to emerge. I earlier mentioned about the think tank, uh, but also from um, aerospace industry, uh, uh, just like Ma Xingri. Um, you know, who just appointed as a party chief for Xinjiang, who previously um, is governor of Guangdong. He advanced his career largely from aerospace industry. There are many people similar to him, including Zhejiang party secretary, uh, Yuan Jiajun, and many others. So uh, these are the people that uh, I think that uh, we do need to know better and more objectively about uh, uh, these leaders will shape China, and, uh, and uh, they uh, certainly are the uh, important uh, uh, you know, leaders along with uh, you know, uh, uh, in the Xi Jinping, uh, the third term. So this is the, uh, the next book I, I, I'm currently writing, writing about. Well, I look forward to learning more about it. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to asiareviewbooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find count other author interviews at the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Brian, where can people find you? Thank you, Nicholas. Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at handle at Brian Wong OPR, or alternatively on Facebook, where I run a bilingual Facebook page, Brian Wong Huang Yuxun. Uh, yeah. Well, great. Uh, if I may, I want to add one thing. It's about the, my middle-class Shanghai book. And it's available by Amazon.com and also there's a Kindle copy as well. Um, now, the book is really um, uh, 10 years' work. Uh, it's talk about art, architecture, 
education, politics, and, um, and um, in many other uh, uh, related subjects. So I think that again, um, I'm from Shanghai, and uh, with you know, kind of a Shanghai entrepreneurship. But actually, all the loyalties go to Brookings and not go to me. But I think it's worthwhile and uh, uh, to look at that one, uh, that book. And thank you so much for your interview. We hope you subscribe to listening to the Asian View Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends who want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Samantha Bose, author of Kashmir at the Crossroads, Inside a 21st Century Conflict. But before then, thank you so much, Chung, for joining me and Brian today. Thank you. Thank you for having me.